If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Some 550 years ago, a middle-aged merchant called William Caxton did something that would change the course of literary history. He produced the first book ever printed in the English language. It was a remarkable undertaking, and one that Lydia Zeldenrust, lecturer in Middle English Literature at the University of Glasgow, chronicles in the March issue of BBC History magazine. Talking to Spencer Mizzen, Lydia describes the challenges that confronted Caxton, from rejecting Latin and French to deciding which of England's many regional dialects to plump for, in order to go where no printer had gone before. So Lydia, you've just written a feature for BBC History magazine about the first book printed in the English language back in the 1470s. I wonder if you could start by introducing us to this book. What was it about and why did William Caxton, the, the, the driving force behind this landmark moment in the history of English literature, why did he choose this particular tell? So it's a really interesting book, partly because it is so it is a first, which kind of makes it interesting anyway. But it's also interesting because it isn't what you would expect. I think if we think of the early days of printing and kind of the first book and things like that, we would expect that maybe it's a Bible or something, or maybe it's like a key canonical English author, maybe someone like Chaucer or Lydgate is another sort of big name of the period, but it's none of that. It is a very different kind of text. So it's called The Requiel of the Histories of Troy, um, which is a sort of really strange, unassuming title, although it does have Troy in it. So that maybe piques people's interest. A requiel is a word that basically means collection or something like that. So it is a collection of the histories of Troy. It is a sort of historical text. It is also a translated work. So um, it was translated from French, from the Recueil d'Histoire de Troyes. And uh, it's a sort of almost literal translation of the title. 
And the text itself is also quite close to the original. And it is Caxton's own translation. So he did this himself, translated it from French to English. Um, it is, as it says, histories of Troy, so plural. And it, and it does tell the kind of famous Troy story, which is the Trojan War. But in fact, it's not as interested in that. That's kind of you know, it's in there, but not the main point that we are interested in. Instead, it is about the earlier histories of Troy and the various destructions of Troy by Hercules. So it's very much a, a story about Hercules, really. So that is the first book printed in English. And one of the reasons that Caxton chose this probably is because the time when he was kind of undertaking this and he was uh, sort of following the model that was there for when you want to kind of have a translation be supported or when you want to have a book brought out is that you go and look for a patron and Caxton himself was at this point in uh, Flanders he was in the uh, Burgundian low countries and the Dukes of Burgundy sort of really loved these kind of stories around um, Troy and kind of classical history and in particular Charles the Bold who was kind of the person in power at the time he was a sort of a Hercules fanboy I guess he really liked Hercules we know that he had tapestries of Hercules adventures at his court and also when he got married there were kind of little plays depicting adventures from Hercules's life. So this was a bit of a shrewd choice, really, that this was kind of a popular work with the people in power. Um, it, it would have sort of appealed to them. Now, I'm guessing that a lot of our listeners will have heard the name William Caxton without knowing necessarily a great deal about his life. So I wonder if you could introduce us to him a, a little bit. What kind of man was he and, and how much do we know about him? So Caxon was an interesting figure for various reasons. Partly this is because we don't actually know that much about him, his early days, but we know a lot more once he becomes a, a better known figure and, and particularly when he is a printer because he also kind of likes to talk about himself in the books that he prints. So a lot of the books that he prints uh, come with little prologues that he wrote and he tells us a lot about himself. Whether it's true, well, that's a tricky one, but um, some of it has been uh, verified. So we don't really know exactly about his early days. We know that he was probably born in the early 1420s. Um, he tells us later that he's from Kent, and we know that he kind of went into business, basically. So when he is in Flanders, when he's in the Low Countries, he's a merchant. And he seems to have done some early apprenticeships, possibly in London. What we know for more certain where we have kind of historical evidence is that in the 1460s, he was in Flanders and he was based in Bruges, which was kind of the key city there in terms of the trade and export with England. So it's not it's not strange for us to find sort of Caxton the merchant being based in the key trading city. So that's that's where we find him. He, we know that he lived among a community of English merchants and he seems to have been quite well known and respected. At some point he kind of takes on a leading role for them and becomes a kind of a sort of ambassador type role. So he does quite well for himself. We also have some historical records of his trips. We know that um, even though in the 1460s he's based in Bruges and in the Low Countries, he also makes some trips to uh, German-speaking regions. He goes up from Flanders to 
Holland and uh, Zeeland and um, kind of regions um, of um, uh, what's now the Netherlands. And he also occasionally goes back to London on trips like that. So before he he becomes kind of Caxton the printer, he is Caxton the merchant and he does quite well for himself. Although we know that there is a bit of a turning point because he also at some point does some work for Edward IV. So he's quite well connected, has some royal connections there. He does okay, but of course Edward IV is, um, this is the time of the Wars of the Roses, and this is a contested king, and he has to go into exile around 1470. And this is when Caxton's fate kind of changes too, because a lot of the kind of cushy jobs and roles um, that he had before this kind of disappear, and he has to sort of reinvent himself a little bit because he can't um, rely on that kind of royal patronage anymore because there's so much turmoil and his king, his supporter, is now himself in exile in uh, in the Low Countries. Um, so, yeah, it changes a bit for him. So why does he choose printing and, and how does a merchant end up becoming this titan of English printing history? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. One of the things that for me also makes it interesting is that this is a relatively late in life reinvention. Um, So Caxon seems to be around 50 when he prints his first book. So it's really a kind of second career, a kind of new avenue. And it may have been driven by necessity. So like I said, he, he loses some of the jobs and roles he had before. Perhaps it was also opportunity and a kind of desire to do this. It looks like Caxon really is someone who has a love for literature. And what we know what happens, and this is a kind of fateful trip, is that from 1471 to early 1472, Caxon takes a trip to Cologne, which is fun. He's obviously doing other things now. And he tells us um, in that first printed book, in the Requiel, in the prologue, he tells us that for the first time, In ages, he had such a busy, busy life as a businessman. And for the first time, he finds himself with time on his hands and kind of having leisure time and having nothing much to do. So what he starts to do is he starts to translate this French book about the histories of Troy. So that's where he starts to translate this. So that's one key thing that happens when he's in Cologne. It seems like he was already starting to translate this a little bit before he came to Cologne, but that's when he has he has time. He can do this now. And the other thing that happens is that in Cologne, he is now finds himself for the first time in a city where there are printed books, where there is a printing press. So when he was in Bruges, Bruges is a very, very culturally sophisticated city at this time. This is kind of where some of the most lavish manuscripts that were produced in the medieval period come from. If you think of kind of, you know, amazing books that you've maybe seen with like gold leaf and amazing colours and things like that, they tend to come from Bruges. It was quite a, a sort of very high-end market of manuscripts. But now that he's in Cologne, this is a city with a printing press. So printing kind of originates, I'm sure we all know um, the Gutenberg name. Um, it comes from Mainz, a German city on the Rhine, and it's started to spread since then in a sort of five or six years since then and several other cities start to get printing presses and Cologne is one of these early cities so it sort of spreads along the Rhine as it were and so Caxton's there and he kind of sees this and we know from his later successor wink in the word he tells us that Caxton already got a bit interested in printing and he's involved in the printing of some Latin books he probably doesn't print them himself he's probably acting more as a publisher hiring someone who actually knows the technique and knows how to do it but he he starts to get interested in printing and starts to see the opportunities when he is in Cologne. 
As you've kind of alluded to there, what, I mean, one of the things that really comes through from your feature is the fact that when it came to printing technology and expertise, the likes of the people of Cologne were quite a few steps ahead of the English. I mean, why was England so far off the pace when it came to printing at, at this point? Yes, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Because we, I think we sometimes are quite used to thinking certainly of English literary culture nowadays as being quite ahead of, of, of other places and kind of being leading, I think, sort of Anglo-American literature being quite leading and obviously English as a world language. But this is a very different time. English was very far from a world language at that time. It was a very marginal language. If you If you sort of cross the sea, it wouldn't get you very far to speak English. You really need to start speaking French or perhaps Dutch in Caxton's case. And then further beyond, German would be a bit more useful. So it's, it's interesting from that point of view because it's a different way for us, I think, to think about it. Yes, printing is very much a continental innovations and innovation. And like I said, it starts sort of in German cities and then it spreads quite soon to Italy as well. And by the time Caxton is kind of um, conducting his experiments with printing. We also have uh, printing in French cities, experiments in the Low Countries and things like that. So if you wanted to do something with printing at this time, this is where you would go. So there is nothing in England. There is no infrastructure. Nobody has the skill. The, there are no tradesmen. The kind of practical things that you would need for it, like the letters that you would need to put in, the, the the fonts, the types that you would need, or the paper, things like that, none of that is being manufactured in England. It's all on the continent. So places like Cologne and these German cities, this is where you would get the material from. And then when Caxon later goes back to um, Flanders, to the Burgundian Low Countries, he can also get that kind of material. But he, it's crucial for him, it's to do this on the continent, because if you're in England, you have no hope in hell, really, because there's just not the material and not the people. The knowledge is there in this, this continental setting. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So, given all that, how much of a risk did this endeavour constitute for Caxton? I mean, is this... Is this an enterprise that could have ended up in bankruptcy and tears? Totally. Um, and for lots of pe- other people, it did. So Caxton was quite shrewd and probably also lucky in lots of ways, because I'm sure luck always plays a role with these things too. And he did well, although it was also with stops and starts. It was by no means a guarantee that this would go well. So he probably came on the idea when he was in Cologne, something kind of started to form in his mind and then together with him actually working on this translation, he put that together. But what we have at this time is very much a dominance of Latin. So all of the early printed books that we know are all printed in Latin. Again, if you've heard of Gutenberg and his Bible before, that's a Latin Bible that he prints. And the idea of printing in the vernacular takes quite some time to take hold. Now, at the time that Caxton prints his English book, there have been some printers who have printed things in the vernacular, but it is by no means a trend. It's just a little, some experiments here and there. So for Caxton, it really wasn't an obvious choice to be printing in English. Latin is usually the language, but it seems to, the reason he seems to have done this is because, because everyone was printing in Latin, there is a gap in the market. So he knew that if you were in England and you wanted to have a printed book, uh, it was relatively easy to obtain a Latin book because even though books wouldn't be printed in England, Latin books would be printed on the continent and there were existing trade routes. Um, usually the book goes on a ship and that's how it, it makes its way to England. So you could get your hands on Latin books. What you couldn't get as an English reader is books printed in English. So he saw a market there. And one of the reasons I think he did well is because he he started on the continent. And so the interesting thing about the first book printed in English is that it wasn't printed in England. And in fact, that's probably why it worked so well. So it takes a few years for Can- for Caxton to kind of learn learn the ropes, learn not just how does it work practically, but also the kind of marketing around it. How do you sell printed books? It's a very different thing from trying to sell a manuscript because it's a much larger volume. So all this kind of knowledge, but also the materials and also the the tradesmen who can help him. Because if you're a printer, you don't do this on your own. You have a little workshop that you're in charge of, various other people. Um, He takes all of that with him. So printing is very much a continental phenomenon. So we know that a little later after Caxton kind of settles in England, there are some continental printers who come over and who also try and set up presses and this is where you can see that it's a risky business because a lot of them only last for maybe one or two years, a little bit longer if they're lucky. Sometimes even they just print one book and that was it. It didn't sell well and they had to sort of kind of sell their stuff. And you can see that lots of people went bankrupt. Lots of people lost their investments. It, it, it isn't something that is sort of, you know, here is print and everybody lost printed books and we're done. It's a very kind of tricky new uh, new technique and enterprise that takes some years to kind of take off. 
It seems that Claxton had one particularly powerful patron on his side, and that was one of the most powerful women in England, Margaret of York. Can you can you tell us a little bit about her involvement in the, in this book and what kind of difference that made to its success? Margaret of York was vital for Caxton's enterprise, really, because I think we think of this, if you've heard of Caxton before and the first book printed in English, it seems like sort of the work of a great man, but really it was a great woman who made this work possible. I think without her support, it would have been very difficult for him and perhaps the history of printing in English would have been very different as well. Um, So what happens is Caxton started that translation while he was uh, in Cologne. He comes back and he puts it aside for a little bit. So he tells us in the prologue that he started off really enthusiastically, totally keen to translate stuff. And then he realized that actually translating a really big text is not easy. Um, It's quite a difficult undertaking. So he's a bit disheartened and kind of puts it aside for a bit. And then when he eventually comes back to Flanders, he finds himself at the court of Margaret of York, which kind of moves between Bruges and between uh, Ghent. And he he is sort of with her entourage. And there is an occasion where he shows her this work in progress. He shows her the translation and kind of goes, what do you think? And then uh, she immediately spots a spelling mistake and kind of um, corrects his English, which is very interesting. So Margaret of York is this English duchess and she has married Duke Charles the Bold. And so she is now, like I said, in Bruges and in Ghent. So she's English, but she has also by now had kind of lessons in French and she she knows French as well. And probably her French is a bit better than Caxton's um, and possibly her English as well, because we have to sort of bear in mind that Caxton has been living on the continent for a few decades, as it were, or at least at least 15 years, possibly longer. So, yeah, she kind of says, oh, no, you've made a mistake and uh, kindly corrects it. But rather than then saying, oh no, clearly you don't know what you're doing, she actually says, but actually the idea, I like this enterprise and I um, would like to encourage you to finish it. And she lends her support. And this is crucial, really. It doesn't seem to have been a financial form of patronage, but it was more sort of her lending her prestige as a as a noble courtly figure, which would have lent the book a certain prestige as well. It's kind of like the little blurbs you find on books nowadays where so-and-so, the famous author, says, this is amazing, this book will change your life, you should read it. It's that kind of thing. So because he sort of gets to mention her in the prologue as a patron, it sort of raises the, the status of this book and this enterprise. It's not just William Caston doing this weird thing as his own little hobby, but no, there's this noble woman who's supporting this, this very valiant endeavour. What kind of audience was Caxton aiming for with the book? He must have had a, a, a specific type of reader in mind, I imagine, when he, when he came up with this idea. Yeah, so for this particular book, it would have been a noble reader. It does seem like he's following the kind of tradition of manuscripts being produced at the Burgundian court, where you would pick a duke or duchess and kind of um, associate yourself with them, associate the book with them, and then dedicate it to them to give it sort of status and everlasting fame. So this is why he has Margaret of York in there too. And we think that there is also that Charles the Bold connection because he was a Hercules fanboy, that that therefore this particular text would have been uh, something that appealed. So he may have wanted to try to get to Charles via Margaret as well. 
Although there's no reason to think that Margaret might not have herself liked this story because we know from her library, she was a formidable patron, had an extensive library. Um, she may well have, um, we know that she has historical texts in the library, for instance, so she may well have had a personal interest from that point of view. But so when he's printing these early books, we're, we're looking at a very exclusive elite kind of readership. But that does change um, once he goes to England, that change and it becomes a much broader readership. I think one of the things that we sometimes associate printing with is the idea that now everyone could read books and everyone could access them, but that is not yet the case in Caxton's time. It's a very expensive thing to buy a book. And so it makes sense for him to kind of target people with money. Basically, you can target someone who can't afford it, but yet they can't afford it. So (laughs) what is the point? But this does change. He he gets a slightly broader clientele once he comes to England. You also write that that the first printed book was a success. I mean, how how do we know that? How, How do we know they have found a readership in England? Yes, that's a very, very important question, I think, um, and tricky to answer. What we don't have from the period is records saying exactly how many copies he printed, who bought them, (laughs) how much did he get for it. There's none of that. And that's possibly because it doesn't survive, but also probably it wasn't there. It's just it's a new thing that's emerging. So maybe this isn't being written down. What we do have as evidence is Caxton continuing to do the same thing. So it is less than a year later, he actually translates another work and prints that too. And then eventually he kind of in a few years gets the idea to set up shop in England. So he goes to London and sets up shop in Westminster specifically. And this seems to suggest that it is going well, because you wouldn't do it, of course, if it wasn't going well, because that's a big financial investment and a lot of time as well. So just from the sheer number of books that he starts to print and how soon he does it. So I said within a year he prints a book that maybe sounds like that's a long time, but considering that he has to translate this thing and then kind of print it, etc. And printing itself is it's not done in a day, say that that also it's a it's not as lengthy as process as writing a manuscript, but it still takes a while. But that is relatively quickly. So it suggests that there was a good uptake. People were keen on it. And since it's such a considerable investment in terms of time and money, you probably really wouldn't print something if you didn't think that people wanted to buy the text. And we also see from some of the books that he later also reprints the same title. So again, that suggests a kind of popularity because you wouldn't need to reprint it if, you know, it probably it's sold out. So, you, or you can see that more people would buy it. Um, so it's that kind of evidence that sort of suggests to us that, yeah, this was a successful enterprise. Um, and what was the name of the first book that he printed actually in England in Westminster? So the first book he prints in Westminster is in 1476, and it is The Canterbury Tales. So it is Geoffrey Chaucer's famous sort of storytelling collection. And this, I think, is probably the sort of thing that we would think of more with the first book printed in English, if you sort of bill it as this kind of big change and innovation. But yeah, there's this secret history before where actually it's a translated text and Caxton kind of messes around with stuff on the continent before he's ready to kind of go to England and, and publish this this great author. And um, Chaucer at the time was already quite well respected and was starting to become a kind of canonical figure. So he's um, kind of, yeah, putting himself on the map by doing that. Now, for me, one of the, the most interesting facets of your feature is the fact that for Caxton, this wasn't just a case of printing a book in the English language. He also had to decide which p- particular English 
dialect to choose for his book. And as you write, he eventually plumped for a London dialect. What informed that decision? So this is an interesting problem because it's not something that would have necessarily popped up with manuscripts. If you're writing, um, let's say someone commissions you to write something, a local person goes to a local scribe, you could write it in the local dialect because that is what that person understands, can read, easy as it were. The problem with printing is that you are now, well, the problem and the opportunity with printing is that you are now able to kind of produce texts in the same form in much higher numbers than was possible for manuscripts. Um, So great. Again, it saves time and money, but it leads to real problems um, in terms of picking the English that you should Um, um, that you should write your text in. This sounds strange to us, but if I take you back to this period, um, what we have at this time is not uh, one standard English language. Late Middle English, the, the English of the late medieval period, really isn't one language, but more a collection of regional dialects. So your spelling and your vocabulary will differ according to where you are. And so this is a problem for Caxton, because if you want to reach a large audience, you have to also make sure that they can all understand what you are writing. Um, You have to settle on a form that everyone can sort of read. And one of the problems, so he talks about this in one of his later books, which is called the Aneidos. It's an English translation of the Aeneid. Um, It's another kind of um, classical story. And he tells us that um, this was real difficulty for him because he, he actually gets readers complaining about his language and his his choice of English. And he gives us a really interesting example. So he tells us about a group of merchants from the north of the country who kind of travel along the Thames to the south. And then there's a day where there's no wind. And so they have to sort of land. um, And um, they're in Kent at this point. And they uh, decide to sort of stay there. And they're looking for some food. So this northern merchant kind of goes up to the lady and she says, I would like to buy some eggs. And eggs is kind of the Middle English northern word for eggs. And the lady immediately replies, I don't know what you want. I don't speak French and kind of goes on. And then the northern merchant goes, I don't speak French either. I just want some eggs. And she sort of looks at him puzzled. And then finally, after some confusion, another person comes along. And he says, oh, I know what he means. He wants to have iron, which is the southern English word for eggs. And now she understands and she goes, ah, well, here are your eggs, etc. And this Caxton sort of uses as an example to say, so what am I supposed to choose? If I pick eggs, then people in the south don't know what I mean. If I pick iron, then people in the north don't know what I mean. So this seems to have been an ongoing problem for him. And it's really interesting because he writes these little prologues, we get some insight into the choices that he makes. And he tells us that it was a real consideration to think of what kind of English he should use. And it's not just the dialectal variation that's a problem for him. It's also the kind of status and sort of literary English that one would use because he he says he wants to aim for something sort of in the middle. So not too crude and not too base. It has to sound sort of literary, 
but not too literary because then nobody knows what you're saying. So he's kind of saying that he wants to sort of prioritize comprehension. So he picks something that sounds sophisticated, but not so sophisticated that people don't know what you're on about. But it's a real sort of confusion and a point of contention for him. Um, and it's really interesting to read his little reflections on that. And one of the interesting things I think is he doesn't just talk about how dialects are different, but also how language itself changes. So he says that one of the difficulties is that the English he spoke as a young boy was already very different from the English he speaks when he's in his 50s. Um, and I think, I don't know, for me, that's very recognisable when every year we have this sort of word of the year. Um, and I think this year everyone went, I don't know what goblin mode means. <laughs> and you look at kind of comments on the, on the articles and people go, oh, I'm just losing track of English nowadays. These young people invent. And yeah, Caxton's kind of saying the same stuff. Um, Caxton also doesn't know what goblin mode is. He, he hugely sympathizes about these sort of changes of the language that you just can't keep up with, as it were. But you also write that his his choice of of dialect didn't just impact this first book or the first few books. It actually had very long term ramifications for the the evolution of written English. Could could you elaborate on that a little bit, please? Yeah. So in a sense, Caxton choices are really important because they inf influence what later printers are doing. So Cax in Caxton's work, we see the kind of early stages of standardization, basically. So I said that there is no standard English at this period, but with the printed book, this kind of push towards standardization of spelling starts to happen. Uh, and we have this nowadays, right? So it's not like dialects have disappeared nowadays. We definitely have them, but they're not seen on the page. And this is kind of the important shift that happens with printed books where you have one sort of written English, um, even if it doesn't always reflect the spoken English. And one of the key aspects here is London as a key printing city. So, so uh, Caxton does choose to set his shop up in London, in Westminster. There are very perfect economic reasons for that. It makes total sense for him to do that. And even though we do have printing some attempts in other cities like Oxford, it doesn't really take off. It really is London that is the printing centre. And so that also means that London English kind of becomes the standard, or at least the expectation that it is a sort of southern city dialect that would become the standard that sort of starts from this. Now, I don't think it is necessarily that Caxton thought that London English was better than any other kind of English. For him, it was just a practical choice. He's there. This is his most direct audience. That's what he picked as a dialect. But it has huge ramifications through the ages. Yes, this is how kind of a southern city English becomes our standard for, for spelling and for vocabulary as well. And finally, Lydia, what for you makes this such a, an important milestone in sort of English literary history? For me, it makes an important milestone, not just because it's a first and because it kind of sets off, you know, a lot of other sort of firsts because kind of other kind of printing innovations happen. For me, it's really important because it just reminds us that English literature doesn't exist in isolation. So it takes someone who's working on the continent and who's kind of familiar with continental um, innovations and literary trends and fashions 
to start this and this is why it then eventually succeeds. And I think we forget this sometimes. Again, just the surprise that the first book printed in English wasn't printed in England. So the idea that language and nation aren't necessarily linked. And it's easy to forget that sometimes. And again, because English is such a dominant global language and such an important literary language as well. Nowadays, if you want to share your book, you want to have it translated into English. That's how you open up to a massive audience. Whereas what Caxton was doing, he was actually translating from a much larger language, French, which was spoken, you know, in many more regions and was kind of a prestige language to English, which was just a, a, a marginal it was a weird thing to do. It didn't necessarily make sense. It wasn't really an opening up so much as kind of targeting a specific audience, his home audience. So I think it's important to to remind ourselves of that, that times were very different and that English literature also has these sort of foreign influences that sometimes we, we overlook and we forget a little bit um, the kind of debt that we owe to continental innovations. Um, and also Margaret. Margaret never never really appears in this story. Sometimes she's mentioned, but she I, I do think that without Margaret of York, maybe Caxton would have eventually still printed a book, but this particular book, it, yeah, that's because of her, because of her support. So I think we should also not forget uh, the great woman behind this man. That was Lydia Zeldin Rust. You can read her feature on Caxton in the March issue of BBC History magazine. And if you want to find out more about another major figure in the early print trade, then why not check out 50 Things That Made the Modern Economies episode on the Gutenberg Press, which is available now on BBC Sounds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.